Good morning. That was fun. Great job, kids. Give them another round of applause. We had so much fun this week with uh, the, the VBS, and it was kind of sad when it ended. I was sad. I was really sad to take down that set that we worked tirelessly on. But um, we had a really nice time this week, and I hope that next year, if you weren't a part of it, of the VBS, either as a worker or by bringing your children, that you will try next year to be a part of it. It's just so rewarding. It is a, it is a great reward to give yourself, your time, your life for others. Jesus says, if you really love yourself, Scripture teaches if you really love yourself, if you really care about yourself, then you die to yourself and you live for God and others. True life begins when we begin to move away from ourself and we begin to live for God and others. We were not created to worship ourselves. The mess that we're in today is because our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided that they would choose to follow their will instead of God's will. There's nothing wrong with eating fruit. Unless God says don't eat that fruit. And the moment that they ate that fruit, they said, you know what? We're going to be like God. In fact, that was the temptation. The serpent told Eve, if you eat that, don't you know that if you eat that, you will be like God? Don't you know already, Eve, that you were made in His image? And if you want to be like God, you don't get to just get the glory because the God in whose image you were made, you're already like God, Eve. The God in whose image you are made is eternally other-directed in love. And Eve decided, and Adam decided, that they wanted to be their own God. God said, this is a false God. If you want to be like God, you have to love God. You have to love others. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them to 1 John. That's the epistle. 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to be reading verses 7 through 21. And we're going to eventually get there. I promise you. But we've got some other things to say before we get to that. Again, that's 1 John Chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. This is the end. This is a sermon series designed to answer the question, what is our purpose as a church, or why do we, the Northwest Baptist Church, exist? Why are we here? What are we here for? Are we here to be a place that we come to once a week on a Sunday morning, or are we here for a mission, for a purpose? Are we here to do something? Are we here to make ripples in the community? 
Are we here to make God's love known to the world? Or are we just here to get some music and maybe a sermon, always a sermon, maybe a good sermon, depending on whether or not I do good that week? What are we here for? So, I not only want to give you information and let you know that our mission here at Northwest is to cultivate a greater love for God and for neighbor, but I want to challenge every one of us to live to a higher purpose, to inspire all of us to begin to live for God and neighbor, to begin a journey as a church, as one body, begin a journey that takes us away from our own selfish desires towards God and towards others. The goal of our church is not what God can do for us as humans, but what humans can do for God. We are here to serve God, to serve others. The end, and by the word the end I mean goal, is not to promote more health in your life. Though I hope you're healthy. I got up this morning, I had half of an avocado. I hear that's good cholesterol. I hear it's good fat. Whatever that that means. But I just trust what they say. They say that avocado is good fat, and I hope you're healthy. But if you want to get healthy, go to your dietician. This week of service led a lot of us to end up at McDonald's for the greater good of being here to serve children. We're not here for health, wealth, success, and prosperity. You want prosperity? Go to TD Ameritrade or Scott Trade. That's not why we're here. That's not what we're doing. There are churches that will gladly take your money and tell you that the church is here to make you Healthy, wealthy, and wise, or healthy and wealthy and prosperous. But not only is that a false gospel, it's not the gospel that we preach. You heard what we just sang, our children just sang, Christ we proclaim, and Him crucified for you and for me. And just as He was crucified, we preach, take up your cross Follow, follow him. There was, a re, there was a reality in the days of Jesus when Jesus said, follow me. He literally meant, Get, leave what you're doing and follow me. That's how you do it back then. How do you know that Jesus, how do you know that you're a disciple of Jesus? Well, are they around him? But Christ is no longer here on earth. He is ascended unto the Father And He has sent to us a comforter, a spirit of unity. And today, the way the whole world knows we're God's disciples is by how we love one another. Our message this morning is on the second part of our mission to cultivate a greater love for our neighbor. So let's pray this morning. Father... Only you can cultivate this love in our hearts. Only you can make us love our neighbor more. Lord, let us begin to love our neighbor by seeing the love that you have shown to us. 
the unconditional forgiveness You've shown to us. That You, God, would leave Your throne in heaven. You would become man. And You would take not a crown, but a crown of thorns. Not a throne, but a cross. That is the love of God. And those who are born of God abide in that same selfless, other-directed love. Make that our love this morning. Make that reality manifest. I, I, Lord God, I am asking You to do this. I am asking You, because only You can change hearts, Lord God. There are, there are so many hearts today going in different directions in this very auditorium this morning. They're going in direction of, of work. They're going in the direction of sex. They're going in the direction of, of even good things, God. They're going in the direction of their family. They're going in good directions. But Lord God, the only direction, Lord God, the only direction is that we glorify You and love You forever. And we love others for Your namesake. So Lord, I pray and plead that You will redirect hearts back towards You. To a life of living for God and living for neighbor. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a bumper sticker. Maybe some of you have seen it. And it has a picture of Gandhi on it. And it says, I like your... It's a quote from Gandhi. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Before I pick on Gandhi, I, I want to show a little bit of sympathy for that, for that bumper sticker. Even confess sin. I have felt like Gandhi, and I have said in my own heart, and at times with my very mouth, I don't like Christians. And if you're honest, you said it too. Maybe not with your mouth, but with your heart, or with your actions, or with your inaction. You say, I don't really like Christians very much. I've said those words simply because my heart was wrong, or because I made uh, other Christians made me accountable to, to standards. I held them accountable to standards I didn't hold to myself. They made me feel guilty by loving God more than I did. And at other times, they were just wrong and malicious and were not reflecting the glory of God in the love of Christ. And so, I understand why Gandhi would say, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Because they're unlike your Christ. I get it. And many of you know what that's like to suffer. My, my parents used to say, you've never been hurt until you've been hurt by a Christian. Because you expect differently out of them. Don't tell me you don't. You hold Christians to a different standard. A standard that you pray to God they don't hold you to when you inevitably do the same thing they're doing. But it is precisely the fact that we are not like Christ 
that God gave us the church so that together we might become more and more like Christ. Because we know that sin is present in our lives. All of us. People will say the church is full of hypocrites. There are probably hypocrites here, yes. But if by hypocrite you mean sinner, then absolutely yes. Every Christian says yes and amen to the statement, I am a sinner. Every Christian In fact, you cannot be a Christian without first saying, I am a sinner. John says, the one who says, I have not sinned is a liar. The truth is not in him. So the church, not a building, it's a body, it's a group of, a collective group of people who say, I am not Perfect. I need Jesus to be perfect for me. And my goal in this life is to reflect His glory as much as humanly possible. But one of the areas where we are most susceptible to letting sin reign in our lives is the area of our hatred for one another. Now, I want to I take a little bit of time with this word hatred this morning because I think we might miss the meaning of Jewish hyperbole in the Bible that John is going to talk about in this passage this morning. Because John writes his epistle from a worldview of dichotomies. It's light versus darkness. It's truth versus lies. And in our passage this morning, it's love for God versus hate for brother. And according to John, there is not a middle ground. Okay, so I want you to, I want you to get, I want you to get here with me and understand that the way we're defining hate this morning is slightly different than the way that we Americans define hate because we define hate to mean my real strong anger and hope and wish that this person would fail in life. That's a, We mean a proactive anger towards that person. Okay, that's what we mean by hate. And so we try to say things like, uh, oh, I don't hate that person. I just really dislike them. That's a distinction without a difference. I don't hate them. Because we, what, by hate, we mean, I want to see him dead, I want to see him fail, I want to see bad things happen to that person. I hate them, I don't like being around them. But I want you to see this morning that the way John defines this world is you either love God or you hate your brother. So that there is no room for apathy. And apathy is indifference. It is I really just don't care about Bob very much. I'm sure Bob's a nice guy. Or I'm sure Susie is a nice woman. I don't hate them. I just don't ever talk to them. I just don't want to give my life for them. I just don't know them very well. And I really don't want to get to know them. I really don't want to give my life to them. 
I want you to see that under this umbrella of what John is saying in this passage this morning, that apathy is hate. That is hate. The atheist comedian Penn Gillette is an atheist. That means he doesn't believe in God. He said, after a show one night, a man came to me who was a Christian he said, you're a really gifted magician and comedian. He's both a magician and comedian. He said, you're so gifted. I just love your stuff. You're so respectful. He said, but man, I just, I just wanted to, to give you this tract that tells you how to know Jesus as your Savior. And he was taken aback by this. And he said in response, I've met a lot of Christians who were never so bold as to tell me that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and if I believe in Him, that I'll have eternal life in heaven. And what he said was a really great question. How much do you have to hate me to believe that if I believe in Jesus, I will go to heaven? How much do you have to hate me to not tell me that? How much do you have to hate a person to know that the solution for all of life's problems, that the ultimate end in glory in heaven is right here. All you have to do is know the name of Jesus. All you have to do is follow Jesus to know it's right there and just say, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to be indifferent. I'm too busy with life. And he said, a non-believer, how much do you have to hate a person to not tell them about Christ in heaven. Even the atheist knows the dichotomy that John is drawing out here. You either love your neighbor or you hate your neighbor. You either love your brother or you hate your brother. But this idea of apathy will not work. Children know this much, parents. You may not be verbally or physically abusive, but when you're neglecting them, they know they're not loved. And in their mind, that's hate. So I want us to think about this dichotomy. It's either love for God or hate for brother. And which side are we going to be on? Okay. So as we get to this passage, I want us to see this, that not having a feeling of hate for other people is not enough. We must look like the love that God has for us that He demonstrates in action. So that if we say that we love God and this love is a true love for God, we will love others in the same way that God loves us Namely, by demonstrating our love, our other-directed, selfless love for others in action. My hope is that you will see from the Bible this morning that the way to demonstrate that you truly love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, like we talked about last week, that the, the true way to show that you love God with your, every fiber of your being is by loving others the way God loves us. 
And the way we love others is not simply by eradicating negative emotions of hate, but simply by expressing our love for others in good works. James gives us an illustration of the type of irrationality behind lip service love without action. He says, if if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. That is, this must have been a Christian. Oh, how are you this morning? I'm blessed. I'm good. You look good, brother. I'm blessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Want to have lunch? No, I don't have time for that. We will walk by a person in need and tell them God's blessings all day long. James says, you see somebody in need, you just say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? What good is it to tell someone go in peace who's hungry? Give them food. What good is it to tell someone go in peace who's unclothed? Give them clothes. So James says, this is bogus. Likewise, if you say you love others, yet do not demonstrate this love in action, what good is it to say you love people? Ultimately, I want us to see that anything short of other-directed, selfless love expressed in action is not the love of God. It is not the love that God demonstrates towards us. Remember what we studied last week. The two greatest commandments are you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the great and first commandment. But today our focus is on fulfilling the second one and how we can manifest this love for God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Today, people cannot see the radiance of God's glory in us without the outward, other-directed expression of love for others. You know, this past week is a great example of just that. The children of Northwest Baptist Church know who loves them. Why? Because they saw it. They saw us here. They heard our voice. They saw the tears we wept with them. They know today my action expressed that we love them. So I got two points this morning. Love thy neighbor and love thy brother. In Matthew 22, 37-40, Jesus commands an all-encompassing love for all people by commanding us to love our neighbor. Who is my neighbor? I want to answer that question. Who is my neighbor? It is not only the person next door to you or across the street from you or in your neighborhood. It is certainly not less than that, but it is so much more than that. Love your neighbor is this. Your neighbor is any other human being who is not you. and to whom you have opportunity to do good. 
Your neighbor is anyone who is not you and to whom you have opportunity to do good. That's your neighbor. Galatians 5.12 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And the word opportunity there simply means an occasion or a time so that the occasion, as the occasion presents itself for you to do good for others, then do it. That was James' point. That was Paul's point. And this was especially Jesus' point in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The one who is a good neighbor is the one who loves with action. Even when that action takes us off of our course. A priest and a Levite pass by a man who's beaten. He's bloodied. He's bruised. He doesn't want to, they don't have their rubber gloves on him. And they see him there. Eh, I don't want to get involved in this. I got to get to work. And Jesus says there was a good Samaritan who was on his way too. Samaritans were hated by Jews. So to just give it a little bit extra punch in the gut, Jesus shows that sometimes people who aren't even God's people can love better than God's people. Because the Samaritan stopped and cared for this person. The love of our neighbor is any other person who's not us, and as we have opportunity to give it to them, to do good for them, we're going to take it. At the very least, Christians should care for others when they have opportunity to do so. You see someone hungry, you have money, buy them lunch. That's pretty simple, right? That's not very hard. You see someone hungry, you have money in your pocket, Buy him lunch. C.S. Lewis was walking down the street one day of London, and there was a beggar on the road. And they were walking with a friend, and the beggar said, do you have any money, friend? And Lewis reached down in his pocket, and he gave him everything that he had in his pocket, and he said, there, go ahead. And they went walking on, and his friend looked at him and said, what are you doing? Don't you know that that guy's just going to take that money and go and buy beer with it? Lewis looked at his friend and said, that's all I was going to do with it. There go I, but by the grace of God. Don't over-spiritualize your good work. You see someone in need of clothing and you have clothes, give them clothes. That's pretty simple, right? I have clothes, you don't. Here. Now I'm not saying derobe. I'm saying if you have extra clothes, give them to them. There's enough nakedness in Miami already. Did I say naked or naked? I don't remember. <laughs> My southern roots may have said naked. You see someone hurting, help them get healthy. The principle is simple. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, says Jesus. They ask from you, just, just give it. And you don't have to have this internal debate about whether or not you did the right thing. You did it because you obeyed God. But there is an ultimate reason why we love others this way. 
Giving them food is not the end game. The ultimate reason why we love others is we love others that they might see our good deeds and glorify the name of the Father who is in heaven. They might cuss you. But if they see your good deeds and give glory to God, praise God. They might be a stinking, nasty, rotten racist. But if by seeing your good action and they hate your guts, they love God, who cares if they hate you? It's not in your name that men are saved. It's in the name of Jesus that men are saved. Don't expect lost persons to behave like saved persons because they don't have the Spirit. For those of you who are visiting, I don't always yell. I'm just very passionate about this. In other words, social action and care for the poor and relief for the oppressed is an essential means to the ultimate end of fulfilling the Great Commission. Let me say that again. Care for the poor, social action, relief of the oppressed, is an essential means for the ultimate end of seeing men and women saved to the glory of God. It is the tool that carves out the new life. That's what God said. They see your good deeds, they glorify me in heaven. This is an essential means to the ultimate end of fulfilling the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? The Great Commission was Jesus' last words to His men, to His disciples. He says this, He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He does not tell them to go and feed them, but he understands that that's going to be part of it. The end is to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But this command was not made only to the twelve disciples. It is made to each and every one of you. You can't sit there today and say, I'm not a pastor. I'm I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a bishop. So I don't have to share with people the good news about Jesus. That's not going to fulfill the command to love your neighbor. J.I. Packer, classical theologian, wrote, we ourselves, all of us, have a responsibility for making the gospel known. Christ's command to His disciples and the Great Commission was spoken to them in their representative capacity. This is Christ's command not merely to the apostles, but to the whole church. Evangelism is the inalienable responsibility of every Christian community and every Christian person. He continues, the Christian, therefore, must constantly be searching his conscience, asking himself, 
if he is doing all that he might be, all that might be done in this field. For this is a responsibility that every individual Christian cannot shrug off. Does the world know that you love God because you are loving them with the gospel? Now ask yourself that question today. Start with your children. Start with your family members. Those of you who have recently come to Christ, do your family members know that you love Jesus because you are sharing His message of salvation with them? What about your co-workers at work? What about your friends at college? Do they know that you are one of Christ's disciples because you are loving them with the message of reconciliation because you believe that there's a heaven and the only way to get there is through the one Son, Jesus Christ. Do they know that? If we want to be obedient to Christ's command to love our neighbor this morning, we must not only care for his physical needs, but we must especially care for their spiritual needs. I want you to think this week, how will I make those in my life know that I love God, that I am His disciple, and my sharing the Gospel with them? And a lot of us are concerned about how do we do that? Because nothing, nothing can break the fun of a party than, hey, what do you believe about God? Hey, did you see that game last night? I did! Did you know Jesus died for you? I get that that's a hard transition to make. I get it. But look for opportunity. Remember what James said? As you have opportunity. Hey, what'd you do yesterday? I went to church and I heard the best message, even if it's not, I heard the best message I've ever heard. Oh man, really? What was it about? It was about 45 minutes. What was it about? It was about how we as Christians show our love for God by how we love others with the gospel, with the good news. What's the gospel? Let me tell you. It begins on your knees in the morning. It begins like this in the morning. God, you put Bob next to me in this cubicle for years. And Bob and I have only ever talked about the dolphins. I'm serious. God, how can you make Bob ask me today about my relationship with you? God, I'm scared. I'm scared. I don't know how to say this, God. I don't know how to put it in words. But God, how can you, how can you make it happen today that I just plant the seed, that I just water that seed, and that Bob, who is on his way, God, because Bob doesn't know Jesus, who is on his way to a devil's hell, how can you make Bob see this morning through me, through a word that I have for Bob, through Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, how can you make Bob see you and your glory? You have opportunity in the morning when the day starts to pray and ask God. Watch Him give you that opportunity. 
You ought to be looking for every opportunity. Guys, the way you look for opportunities to ask that girl out. Girls, the way you look for opportunities to marry that guy who's got a lot of money. The way you set yourself, you say, that is a stereotype. Sorry. God forgive me. Listen to me. It's, let me give you a better way. It's the way you look for anything, for opportunities to get anything that you want. It's the way you look for opportunities to get anything that you want. If Stephanie says about me, if you want it, you will move heaven and earth to get it. And that's to my condemnation when it's for selfish things. But what about when it's for God's glory? Do you move heaven and earth to see Bob come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ? But not only are we to love our neighbor, believers, we're also to love our brother. Remember what Paul said. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone. And then he uses this word, especially those who are of the household of faith. So now, open your Bibles to John. 1 John chapter 4. Don't worry, I'm not just starting a sermon. I'm on page four or five halfway through. Don't worry. Look at verse seven. Beloved. A word there is agapita, agapita, agapitas. Or he's speaking, he uses the same word for love, agapitoi, beloved, that he's going to use for love. So when he says beloved, go in love, they have the same root, agape. Same root. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The very fact that he's saying to you, like I'm saying to you today, go in love, is because he understands that it is possible for Christians to be disobedient to this command. Real born-again believers to be disobedient to this command, otherwise he wouldn't have wasted the paper to write on here, beloved, go and love the way God loves. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We've all heard that, right? Usually we hear someone say, God is love, and they mean by that, don't ever criticize me for the bad things I do. God is love, therefore don't criticize me when I'm living a sexually immoral life. That's not love. I don't love my child when I see him running into oncoming traffic and I let him do what he wants. I love my child when I run out to him and I say, no, you're not going to do this. Do we have that love when we see our brother and sister running into the sexual immoral life? We run after them and say, no, you're not going to do this. I saw you get baptized. I saw you. 
You said to me and you said to all of us that you love Jesus. You did it right there. You got cleansed and you said to me that you're my brother. You're not going to do it. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray with you. We're not going to do this. We have that love for our brothers and our sisters. When we see that spiritual depression set in, that we say, hey, Bob, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to pray with you. Call me this morning. Call me tonight. Let's talk. Let's get lunch. Let's do whatever. Let's read scripture together. Listen to what he says. That love that costs us something because he's defining love in the context. God is love. How is God love? God is love in that the three persons of the one God eternally direct their love to the other persons of the Trinity. The Father gives all glory deserving of Him to His Son. The Son submits perfectly to the love and to the will of the Father and He will obey Him even to death on the cross. And the Spirit never says, look at me. The Spirit always says, don't look at me. Look right back at Christ. Every person in the Godhead shows their love towards the other persons. The one God. And three persons loving one another. That's the love of God. Now listen, in verse 9, he's going to define this love. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God, how do we know what love is? Here it is. God sent. The way John says this in his gospel is that we have seen the glory of the Son. We've seen His radiance full of grace and truth. How did they see Him? He was made flesh. God, perfect God, took on skin and bone and the infirmities of the body that you and I have to deal with. I have to take a little pill every morning because I have acid indigestion. Don't tell me ginger's gonna cure, ginger's gonna cure it. It's not gonna cure it. I have to take a pill. I wish ginger did. It doesn't. I have to take a little pill, and if I don't, acid will just erode my esophagus. And I'll get hoarseness and it hurts. So when you read that God became flesh, I want you to know what that is for you. That God who never had limitations would leave His throne and be under the subjection of the flesh. He got the same stomach aches that you got. He, were, he, he had the same fears and wept. He understands grief. He understands pain. He understands rejection. This is the Jesus we're calling people to. Here is the love of God. He sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation. That means a substitute 
for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How? How ought we to love one another in a way that cost us our lives? In a way that caused us something because it's the way God loved us. The love that we're being called to this morning is to give up something for Him, for others. Because that is the very thing God did for you. So that in the final verse, down at the very bottom, in verse 20, He says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What this verse means is that you do not understand the ultimate grace of God until you begin to love others as selflessly as he has loved you. He has already done it first. We have become consumers of church today. We want the good parts, but we don't want the bad parts. And by bad parts, I mean people. As someone has said, church would be great if it weren't for all the people. We want to love God, but not as people. As Gandhi says, I love Christ, but I just don't love as Christians. And that type of behavior, while we may snicker at it in the car, and while I may have said that in my heart, is to be repented of. It is not behavior for Christians. If you love Christ, you must also love His bride. And His bride is His church. We must look to a church's doctrine, its love for God, and its love for others as the foundation of why we attend church. And certainly some churches are more pure than others, but don't Look for perfect churches because they don't exist. What do I mean by church? I don't mean buildings. I mean bodies. I mean people. I mean that if every chair in every balcony and every pew and every ceiling and the very foundations of this building were to crumble, I could say the Northwest Baptist Church still exists because it is not a building, it is a body made up of many members. They're white. Some of them are white. Just a couple of us. Some of them are Hispanic. Some of them are black. Some of them are Haitian. Some of them are, are Cuban. Some of them are Jamaican. One body. Some of them are really smart. Some of them are very nice. Some of them have a lot of money. Then there's me. Some of, some of them have no kids. Then there's me. One body. 
We're to love our body. We love our own bodies. Do you love the body? Individual Christians are saved to a one body called the church. It's not a building, it's a group of people. And to say that you are a member of such and such church, I talk to people all the time, I'm a member of this church, yeah, tell me about it. Oh, big programs. You ought to see the screen, man, that thing's the whole stage. And last week they had a woman in there who could, she could do jump rope while quoting the, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount, and it was awesome, and the, what about the people? What about the doctrine? What about the love for God and others? It's usually not the first thing I hear. The reason why we struggle with being in churches with people and we look to programs rather than people is because people are messy. Dan Dumas, Senior Vice President of South Southern Baptist Theological Seminary writes, people are the church, and whenever people are involved, things get messy. He continues, relationships are never simple, conflicts flare, people struggle with jealousy, gossip, impurity, and on and on, but God is at work in messy people who know they're imperfect and who run to Jesus to be cleansed. This morning, I invite every messy person to come and be a member of this church. To be a member meaning that you're part of our messy body. And that as you're trying to get your stuff together for the glory of God, we are too. And as you're coming in saying, I'm sexually immoral. I committed sin. I'm addicted to drugs. Please give me that grace and forgiveness I so long for. As you're longing for that, know that the rest of us are longing for the very same thing. Next week, we will all eat of one bread that represents one body, that represents that none of us are saved by our works. All of us are saved by one man, Jesus Christ. Here's what Dumas gives. He gives us four practical things that we can do to get the most out of our churches. We're looking for programs. I'm telling you people. And I, I use Dumas and his four things that he gives because he knows that looking for churches programs is not the same as looking for people. Here's what he tells us to do. If you want to get the most out of your church, that means you could do it in this church. You don't have to go to Broward. I know Broward's got some awesome churches. I know. Listen to what he says. Number one, be part of the whole church. By that he means know everyone. Do you know everyone in this church? Do you stick around when we're done, you make it a point to go and talk to people that you don't know. That's the type of church I want. I've been in churches where I was unwelcomed. As my mother said, I've been in churches that made me feel like home and I've been in churches that made me wish I were at home. This church, I want people to feel at home. That means you've got to put it into action. He says, number two, don't just be a pew potato. I love that. Man, I'm glad he said it and I didn't. 
Don't just be a pew potato sitting there for the sermon and then leaving, he says. Be fully engaged. Find out your spiritual gifts and then use them for others. This past week, I found out I have a spiritual gift. I am apparently a very gifted actor. We had some people get sick this past week and some people weren't able to fill in for VBS and Kathleen was running around like crazy, like what am I going to do? No, it wasn't that bad. And I went in and I said, what's going on? She said, oh, I've had some people back out, some people are sick and I got this skit. I said, I'll do it. I knew I was pretty good at acting. I mean, I knew I was, <laughs> I knew I was pretty funny, you know. All week long I had little kids just, Ian called E-Inventor. You know how much I got paid for that? Zero dollars. You know how tired I was every night? Really tired. You know what the reward was? Two children came to know the Lord as their Savior. I don't know whether it was my acting, but I used my gifts for this church. I doubt it was my acting. Number three, make meaningful relationships. This is his list for how we can get the most out of our church. Make meaningful relationships. He says you can't grow in solitude. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. I asked so many people yesterday, where you been? What church are you going to? Oh, I don't know. I don't need church. You know, I get God on the lake. You seek your own desire. You seek to catch fish. I got a neighbor who golfs every Sunday and he says, no, no, no. The golf course is my church. Then when your wife dies, let the golf course bury her. When you get the worst news of your life that you have cancer eating away at your lungs and you're not going to survive, Will the golf course be there to love you? No, but the church will. When you make meaningful relationships, the church will. There were over 600 people here yesterday to bury our sister. Because she made meaningful relationships. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Number four, Dumas says, take your problems to the church. Listen to me. I am telling you right now, please look at me. If you didn't listen to anything I say, I'm almost done. There's the conclusion, I promise. If you didn't listen to anything I said, listen to this. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. If you've got problems and you don't know how to fix them, I've got a Bible, and I've got ears. So does Dave, so does Johan, so does Kathleen, so does Tara. We want to help you. That's what we're here for. We're here for people. And you're not going to shock me. You're not going to shock me by how bad your problems are. You're not. Because I've experienced the same ones you've got. Okay? I've experienced much of it. You're not going to shock me. I want to tell you you don't have to live with those problems. But there is a Savior who wants to take away those problems. He wants to make you white as snow. He wants to love you. And I want to be the one who gets to tell you that.
I've got a secretary. She'll take your call. She'll set up an appointment. You want to do it today after church? I want to hear you. Come and talk with me. Bring your problems here to the church. Don't run away from the church when you have your problems. Run to it. So what you got pregnant before you were married? Okay, so the couple that didn't was committed to lust before they were married. Bring your problems here. No, it is not God's ideal. But let's bear each other's burdens together. God is a God of reconciliation. My hope is that we're going to be a church of reconciliation. Jesus thought that the foundation of Christian behavior is loving God with every fiber of our being and loving neighbors as ourselves. At Northwest Baptist Church, our mission is to develop and disciple the whole person to love God with all of their heart, soul, and mind. And to love their neighbor as their self. The end to which we are moving is God and others. We cannot accomplish to glorify God and enjoy Him without first loving our neighbor and our brother. If we say we love God with all our heart, our soul, and mind, then we must love our neighbors with other-directed, selfless acts of love. Let's pray. God, You loved us with Your Son. As the song goes, You loved us with a cross. Thank You. I stand here confident that I am going to go to heaven one day, Lord God, that I am saved. I am so confident that I am saved because I am so confident in You, Jesus Christ. Put no faith in my works. I put my trust in You, Jesus. I pray that others will know that today. That they can come here with their problems. That can receive forgiveness every time. From Jesus Christ. Lord, I also pray that You would start a new work in this church where we see love for God displayed in acts of other-directed love for others. That is my prayer that You will make it happen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.